Well, good morning. It is so great to see you all and to be here, and we have great weather again. I'm so grateful, and um, I know many of, or some of you are familiar with that song. Some of you may not be. Uh, it's relatively new, so I encourage you to um, look that up. We may, maybe we'll send out a, a link to that sometime soon. What, what an encouragement in times like today, just as Dave said. Um, to know that a new creation is coming. I can't even, <laughs> can't even say the words without making it through. Um, so, great to be together. And kids, you're just doing great during these services. So we're so grateful that you're here. Um, if you end up drawing a picture of what you hear from God's word in the sermon, I would love to see it. I know some of you have maybe brought crayons and a paper or something to draw with. Um, and families... Just, it's always helpful to remember what we, we do know to be true, but to just hear it anyways, that we welcome movement and squirminess, and you know we're, we're a church family here, and so we, we welcome, and so uh, let's embrace that and feel free to get up and, and move if, if you need to. Well, this is our last Sunday in our series on the fruit of the Spirit, and you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 in your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's the text is written for you on the front of the lyric handout. Now, next week, we're going to begin a new series in the book of Daniel. And I'm really excited about this because I think the book of Daniel has a lot to teach us um, about how to live faithfully and for the good of our society in a culture like this. So I encourage you to read ahead. We'll go at the pace of about a chapter a week. Um, so you can read uh, ahead, read for chapter one for next Sunday. It's a great chapter. Uh, book to read as families together as well, if you have families in the home with you. But this morning, we're at our last message on the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, as we've seen, are these nine characteristics of Jesus that the Holy Spirit produces in us. Now, I know that many of you have memorized this, so I'm just curious if you all just want to say it out loud together, the fruit of the Spirit, if you have it memorized. So I'll just start us off and almost like hear each other. So the fruit of the Spirit is love That was great. Well done. Uh, and this, those nine words that we just heard are exactly what we need right now in our culture and in our lives. You know, there, we don't lack topics to disagree about today. People are divided about the pandemic and the responses to it, divided about solutions to uh, economic or racial tensions in our land right now, divided over the upcoming election, and one of the most essential things that Christians can contribute, not the only thing, wisdom and so forth from God's word, but one of the most essential things that Christians can and must contribute is the fruit of the Spirit. We can show the world what it looks like to disagree with one another while deeply loving one another. And now in this final ser sermon, we're going to look at how we do all of this together. The fruit of the Spirit is meant to shape not just individual lives, but the whole culture of communities, the culture of a church. And so it's to be seen in the way that Christians treat one another so that people can look in in this supernaturally transformed community and say, that's different. That's what we were made for. How might the Lord include me in this? So let's not just think about the fruit of the Spirit as kind of us being maybe an individual tree that bears this fruit, but think of this as a forest 
and there's um, all sorts of trees in this forest, and we're gathered together to bear this fruit together. And, you know, if you're looking for a church or if the Lord has you move at some point and you're looking for a local church, uh, there are two essential things that uh, need to be there. One is the truth of the gospel, and the second is the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, There's more, but it's not that complicated. Is the truth of the gospel present? And is it not just present, but is there also the fruit of the Spirit present? God's supernatural presence. Both of those must be there. Um, we don't want to just be a gathering of people that assent to truth, but we want God's presence among us transforming us to become not just a, a community that believes true things, but is morally beautiful, reflecting the character of Christ. So how do we cultivate this together? Well, that's what we see in Galatians 5, verses 25 to 6, 2, and, and actually beyond that. And the main idea we'll see is, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 25. So let's read this together, and then we'll consider this further. This is right after the fruit of the Spirit's introduced, by the way. So after we've spent time in chapter 5 and seen the fruit of the Spirit, here's where he goes next. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Well, this main idea is in verse 25. The way in which we produce the fruit of the Spirit is by keeping in step with the Spirit. And then we see three ways that we actually do that. We do it by resisting pride, by restoring those in sin, and by helping those in suffering. So let's consider this together. The main idea is, is this. We produce the fruit of the Spirit by keeping in step with the Spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now you can see how obvious the Holy Spirit is right here. Right? The characteristics we've been looking at in this whole series are called the fruit of the Spirit. It's clear that these are not the fruit of mere moral effort. It's the fruit of the Spirit's work. And there are two clear steps here. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the first step, if we live by the Spirit, this is receiving spiritual life from God the Spirit. You can translate this, if we are alive by the Spirit, spiritually alive. This is about receiving new spiritual life. An important and neglected truth about salvation is what theologians call regeneration. This refers to the moment when God makes a person spiritually alive. We're all born physically alive into this world, uh, but we need to be brought to spiritual life. And so when God saves someone, he He not only brings them to faith, he gives them this spiritual life so that we can trust. Jesus refers to this as being born again. So it's like a second birth, but a spiritual new birth. So if you are a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, this has happened to you. The Spirit has given you new life. You are alive by the Spirit. And if you're here and this hasn't yet happened to you, it can. You don't need to try to clean yourself up to make yourself acceptable to God. No amount of 
failure, even the worst moral failures, no amount of that can disqualify you from receiving this. No amount of goodness that you've accumulated and efforts you've put in morally can qualify you for this. The Lord does it, and he'll do it for anyone. So what we do is we hear the message of grace that God made us, every one of us, and we have all turned away from him. We have all put ourselves at the center of our lives, and we have committed numerous sins, both intentionally and sometimes even just the result of other aspects of sin in our life, just create these patterns of behavior that we get locked and enslaved in sin, and we reject God. But God in his grace has sent Jesus to live the perfect life that everyone's failed to live, to die on the cross for our sins, bearing the weight of judgment we deserve. And then Jesus rose again from the grave and he pours out his spirit so that we can trust him and receive free forgiveness and receive this new life from him. So we just trust. And if you are trusting in Jesus, you hear this message, you say, God, please forgive me, please renew me. I'm yours. You have been born again. And if, if you sense through this morning this just happened to you, um, please tell a Christian friend if you have one, let me know. I would love to talk to you about this. So that's the first step in this text. If we live by the Spirit, if we're alive by the Spirit. Now, there's a second step, and this is the purpose of that. Look again at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So step one is being made alive by the Spirit. Step two is keeping in step with the Spirit's transforming power. So in theology, we would call this regeneration and then sanctification. The Spirit regenerates us, gives us new life, and then the Spirit transforms us to become like Jesus progressively. So keep in step with the Spirit. What does this mean? Well, some have misunderstood what this looks like. They've said this means you know, hearing messages from the Spirit about tasks to do during the day where to go for lunch, who to talk to, what job to get, and so forth. But this isn't about listening to the Spirit give us, you know, amoral direction. This is about the Spirit giving us new desires that we respond to. It's about the Spirit convicting us of impatience in a hard conversation. It's about the Spirit moving us to be faithful when we don't want to keep a commitment. It's about the Spirit urging us to be gentle in what we post online, right? The fruit of the Spirit. So the Spirit is less interested in where we go to lunch tomorrow than he is in how we treat the person who messes up our order. And this is how we produce the fruit of the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. Moment by moment, the Spirit is present to transform our character, and we are to express the fruit of the Spirit by his power. So that's the main idea here. We produce the fruit of the Spirit by keeping in step with the Spirit and marching in line with him. So, how do we do that? We see three ways we do this. That's what chapter 5, verses 26 through 6, 2 and 3 show us. So first, we keep in the step with the Spirit by resisting pride. Verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is what he means by keeping in step with the Spirit. We resist becoming conceited. We resist pride. This means that if we want to be individuals in a community filled with the Spirit, we can't be filled with ourselves, right? Because look at what he says happens if we're conceited. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Those are expressions of pride in a community. Pride makes us overly competitive in unhealthy ways. It makes us compare ourselves to everyone else. So provoking happens 
when we look down on somebody for maybe not being as good as we are at something, and we shame them, or we try to just slip in that little comment to let them know that we've been better, or we did that before them, uh, we provoke them to anger in doing that. Envy is, the, is similar, but somewhat the opposite in some ways. Envy happens when we look down on someone's success. So in a sense, we're looking up to them because they've succeeded where we wish we were, but there's a heart posture that still looks down on them because we despise them for their success. We feel like they don't deserve it. We do. We envy them for their position. And isn't this just such a natural struggle for us in light of our sinful hearts? I mean, I do this. Someone gets a position or position on the team that you want or a role that you were hoping for in the workplace, and your first thought isn't, I'm so grateful for them. I'm happy for them. This must be a great experience for them. But maybe the first thought is something like, really them? Or what about me? Right? Self-pity is a fruit of pride. So what is the opposite of all this? Well, it's humility. This is an essential ingredient to producing the fruit of the Spirit. You know, there's a book I commended at the beginning of this series by Jerry Bridges. I have it here called The Fruitful Life, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And if you want to continue thinking about this and seeing this cultivated in your life beyond this series, I'd encourage you to grab this book, The Fruitful Life by Jerry Bridges. Type in Jerry Bridges on Amazon, and if you can't find this book, order anything he's written. It'll be great. Um, and he is really interesting. He didn't just include all the fruit of the Spirit, chapter on each. He included also a chapter on humility because it's so essential to cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. So instead of looking down on people or provoking them, we honor them. Instead of envying their success, we rejoice in it. The English poet George Herbert said that one of the greatest signs of holiness, right, which is really bearing the fruit of the Spirit, becoming like Jesus, one of the greatest signs of holiness is, in his words, procuring and rejoicing in the success of other people. Right? So you work to make people successful, and then you rejoice in it. That's healthy leadership. That's just, that's just humility and holiness. Pride doesn't want to see other people succeed or outpace us. And when people do, we turn to self-pity. But true holiness helps others succeed and rejoices when they do. And C.S. Lewis helps us remember what humility really is, right? So humility uh, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Because you're thinking of the Lord Jesus and other people more. So you find it, if you find a community where the fruit of the Spirit is at work, you'll find a community where uh, people don't make a big deal of themselves. Instead, they make a big deal about Jesus, and they honor one another. So that's the first step in walking uh, by the Spirit and step with the Spirit. We resist pride. Now, second, we keep in step with the Spirit by restoring those who sin. Verse 1, you can read it with me. Brothers, or brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So Paul's addressing all Christians here. He's saying that there are going to be times when you're around other believers and someone's caught in a sin. There will be times when people fail to bear the fruit of the Spirit. There will be times when Christians may even do spectacularly grievous things. And Paul says, don't be surprised. Here's a helpful practical pathway for how to respond. He answers three questions we may have about how to help. Who should do that? Who should help? What's the goal? And how do we do it? So who, who first needs to help someone when they're caught in sin? He says, you who are spiritual. Now that's not a special class of super saints. 
Um, it's, it's the ideally all Christians, those who are walking by the Spirit and not in that moment caught in a sin. What's the goal of this process? The goal is restoration, right? The goal is to restore someone, not to shame them, not to condemn them, not to by force make them comply. The goal is to bring them back into a place of spiritual health, restore them to the Lord and to one another if they've sinned against someone else. And then how do we do this? With gentleness. He says, restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. So we aren't harsh, but gentle. We do this with humility also. Because notice what he says next. Keep watch on yourself, right? As you restore someone, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What does that assume? It assumes that we can fall into the very sins that we're seeking to restore someone from. We are susceptible to sin as well. So when we help someone, we don't do it from a posture of moral superiority as if we are above the very things they've done. We do it with a sense of our common humanity and spiritual weakness. We know we're weak. We know that we're capable of the same sins that someone has committed that we're restoring. So we watch ourselves even as we help someone else. Now, this doesn't mean that we're you know, the sin police for everyone we know, but it does mean that with humility and gentleness, we restore brothers and sisters we're close with who are caught in sin. This is an act of love. So what does this look like for us? There's a lot of examples. Here's just a few. First, in your school or in the workplace, many of you understand that there are unique temptations to you in your school or in your particular workplace. And this is why it's so important to have conversations with other believers who understand those temptations. So find a friend, a Christian friend, in your school, in your class, or in, with the same vocation as you, and have conversations about those unique challenges. Talk together about how to integrate faith in your life in your classroom or faith and work. Talk together about the temptations you have to dishonor the Lord Jesus and develop a relationship so that when one of you might get caught in the sin, there's trust and relational history to be able to restore one another with gentleness. A second category would be parenting. This calls parents to correct their children with humility and gentleness. Parents correct children with a deep awareness. This is how it should be, right? With a deep awareness that we are sinners just like our children. We have to keep a watch on ourselves lest we commit the very sins that we're seeking to correct. This has happened to me tons of times. Uh, one of my sons may be impatient or angry, and what's my response? A worse display of impatience and anger. Um, I'm seeking to correct my son about one sin, and by the end of it, I owe the bigger apology because I have handled it. Um, I've actually offended the Lord more than my son has, whom I am actually seeking to correct. And so this should humble us. We should correct our children with a posture of gentleness and respect. Parents are not qualified to correct their children if they are in anger. If, if you are in sinful anger toward your child, you are in that moment disqualified from correcting your child. You need to repent first. Uh, before you seek to correct your child. All correction should be done in a way that respects the dignity of the child. Another category is marriages. God intends your marriage, if you're married, to be a garden that bears the fruit of the Spirit. 
And it, and it also means that each spouse has a role in humbly, gently cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in the other, being the means of the Spirit to address sin in each other's lives. So there should be um, all kinds of patience and a covering of a multitude of sins, right? We don't address every single thing that we see, but if there is a harmful pattern, a husband or wife can humbly, gently, carefully bring it up. You can say something like, honey, I may be wrong, and I struggle in the same way sometimes, but I think what you said might have been harmful. Can we talk about this? One of the most helpful resources uh, for this that Christina and I have talked about at different times over the years has been a book called When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey. And he gives a list of several helpful questions to ask before correcting a spouse. So I'm going to just read these questions. There's about six of them. You you don't need to write them down. Um, I can make them available for you if you want me to. Um, But the idea here isn't for you necessarily to write them all down, but to just get a sense of this. Like, listen to these questions, and this should shape your kind of posture toward a spouse or really anyone, a friend, when you correct sin. So here's the six questions to ask before you do it. Have I prayed for God's wisdom and acknowledged my need for his help in serving my spouse? Are my observations based upon patterns of behavior or merely a single incident? Am I content to address one area of concern even if I'm aware of several? Am I committed to not overwhelming my spouse with a great volume of information and a litany of examples? Am I prepared to humbly offer an observation rather than an assumption or a conclusion? And finally, is my goal to promote God's truth or my preference? Those are the kinds of questions that will will make this kind of conversation be a blessing rather than a further struggle that would provoke to further sin. And one more area where you can think about applying this is just as Christians, when thinking about and addressing culturally controversial issues, right? Sometimes in some cultures, the, Bible moral, the Bible's moral vision will be popular in some ways and not in others, right? Culture to culture, there's going to be some things that a general society says, we like that, we don't like that. And we're in, we're in a certain cultural context where certain aspects of Christian virtue are affirmed and praised, and others are rejected and even viewed as um, uh, immoral. So when this happens, uh, we don't want to be known only for truth, but also love, right? Both of them. And so when Christians speak, when we speak about the sanctity of human life, right, in the womb or with those who are having physical difficulties in life, or who are significantly aging, and we think about the challenges of that in our culture when we address the topic of same-sex relationships, knowing that God's vision for humanity is a good design of one man and one woman being united in marriage. When we address these things, we also have to have a posture of humility and love. When we talk about this, we're not just talking about a position to prove, but we're talking about people to, to be loved. And so this calls us to be the kind of community that responds to challenges in our culture with both truth and love at the same time. And without both, if we don't have both, we'll either speak the truth and we won't be heard, or we'll have love, but we'll have nothing that we're prepared to say. So we have to say, we have to have both. So the goal is not to be proven right. It's to restore people to God and to flourishing 
and to do it with gentleness here. Many people have left churches in the past couple decades because they feared that in their own struggles with some of the matters I just talked about, that they would not be received with gentleness, that they wouldn't actually have people seek to restore them gently, but to just shame them and push them out with harshness. And so we want to be a people that make it obvious that we seek to restore in gentleness. Finally, we keep in step with the Spirit by helping those in suffering. So Paul moves from caring for those in sin to caring for those in suffering. 6-2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now there are a lot of burdens to be bared, represented even in this gathering. Some of them that you are bearing all alone and no one even knows about. Some that people do know about and you're hurt that people have not borne them with you. Others of you are eager to bear other people's burdens, but you don't know how, or you don't know how to find out, and you have those challenges. And so this is just affirming that desire. The, the Christian church is to be a place where people's burdens are known, not necessarily to everybody, but it's, it's a network of overlapping friendships where everybody's known by at least one or a few. And there's a genuine posture of moving in to have people's burdens slide off their backs and onto yours, and you shoulder it with them. We shoulder it with one another. There's burdens about losing a job, burdens of being in debt, burdens of being sick, burdens of being handicapped in certain ways, burdens of facing the challenges of aging. You could face the unique burdens of being poor, the burden of being in a nursing home without family who cares for you, the unique burden of having children walk away from the Lord, the unique burden of being single or married or widowed, the unique burdens of raising children and raising children as a single parent, the unique burden of being the only family member in your family who knows the Lord. There's so many burdens that we carry. And as we keep in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, part of that means seeking to learn about the burdens of others, being sensitive to that, and then bearing them together. We spend time with those who are lonely. We listen to people who are hurting. We invite people into our home who don't have others to invite them in. Very practically, you know, even after this service, um, have an ear as you talk with one another in our time of fellowship to just listen for burdens. And bearing that burden can be as simple as listening and expressing genuine concern and curiosity and care for them as they speak. It, it could take creatively, creativity, right? Sometimes burdens aren't best borne by just asking someone, how can I help? But by having a relationship with them so that you just know what they would need. You're aware of their burden and you, you know how to help them without them even asking. And so let's, in conversations, to make sure, of course, and the Lord has blessed us with this, but let's be eager to pursue this all the more. Pursue one another through the week, not just in meetings and gatherings like this, and ask good questions that plunge deeper than the superficial, right? Ask questions like, even as simple as, how is your week going? That, that invites people to share if there's a burden. And then listen, ask questions, seek to bear that in some way that you can. Really simple, really practical, really rare in our culture. Um, but this is the kind of thing that just creates a winsome witness for Christ in the world. So we've come to the end of our series on the fruit of the Spirit. But really every sermon uh, it has that goal, right? The Spirit using God's Word to cultivate this in our lives. So as we wrap up, I just want to leave us with three reminders. First, we will only do this as we receive continually God's grace to us through Jesus. 
as the Spirit continues to open our hearts and eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and his kindness toward us, and we receive that. In other words, we will bear the fruit of the Spirit as we set our eyes on Jesus and how he actually perfectly displays this. Not only just as an example to follow, but he displays that toward us personally. Like This is how he treats you. Jesus is not conceited, provoking, or envying us. He came to us with great humility, Philippians 2, so that he didn't count his equality something with the Father, something to be greedily grasped or clung to, but he became a human and served us even to the point of a shameful death on the cross. Jesus is the one who restores us when we're caught in sin and he does it gently and with humility. He doesn't unload uh, all of our problems um, onto himself. Well, he unloads all, what I'm saying, he does not address all of our problems at once. And isn't that good news? Haven't you felt that over the years, just how he's been so slow with you? I mean, if you've been walking with Christ for a number of years, imagine if all the things he's kicked up in your life, he just unloaded on you to address immediately right away. He's patient and gentle with us. Um, and so that, that gives us the ability to be patient and gentle with others because we receive that from the Lord Jesus. And he's gentle with us. Jesus is the one who carries our burdens. He carries them in our suffering. He invited those who were weary to come to him. He said, come to me, all who would labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He took our sins upon himself on the cross and was weighed down with the weight of judgment, the burden that every one of us as sinners should bear for all of eternity. But he graciously took it upon himself so that as we trust him, we don't have to bear that weight ever. We can now live by faith, receiving his forgiveness and then we can keep in step with the Spirit. So let's not be discouraged, even in our failures to bear the fruit of the Spirit as quickly as we'd like. He's patient and gentle with us. He's willing to forgive us of every failure and empower us by his Spirit. So that's the first reminder, two brief ones. Second, there is hope for you if you are discouraged at your slow growth. Here's what John Newton, a pastor from the 1700s, said. I've mentioned this before, and I'll probably quote it again. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what, what sorry, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God I am what I am. You see that hopeful realism? Right? We are not who we long to be. We're not who the Lord Jesus will transform us to be by the Spirit and the new creation, but if you've been walking in Christ, you're not who you used to be. And you are who you are by God's grace. And so we can receive that and move forward. And then finally, let's make the fruit of the Spirit our permanent prayer for one another as a church. We began this series a few months ago with an encouragement to pray. And I shared that John Stott, this great leader who passed away several years ago, uh, how he used to pray for the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit and for his life every day. And so let's um, make this our daily prayer. This was his prayer every day. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
So I encourage you to start your day with that prayer. Pray for yourself and for your small group if you're in one, for our church family. Families, this would be a great way to start your day, asking the Lord to bear the fruit of the Spirit in your relationships together and us as a church family. Consider ending your day looking back to then thank God for how he's done that, to confess your own sin where you have failed to keep in step with the Spirit in these ways, and then to look to the next day for him to bear it um, all the more in your life. What will happen if in the year 2040, I don't know, maybe we'll have another outdoor service. I mean, I hope hope we have more of these. I think we like this thing. I like it. Um, But let's say we're, we're gathering here in 20 years, and many of us had prayed that kind of prayer nearly every day for those 20 years, that we're just calling out on God, Lord, help us hold fast to the truth of the gospel and bear the fruit of the Spirit together as a church. Uh, That's what we need, and we can weather any storm. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and in the Spirit. And we're so thankful that this is the vision of life you call us to, that when we understand it and see it in its beauty, especially displayed through Jesus, it's compelling, and we want it. So thank you that you've made the good life a beautiful life, a morally beautiful life, We pray that you would forgive us individually as a church family for the ways that we fail to cultivate this. And we thank you for cultivating it to the degree that you have. And in so many ways we overlook. We together thank you. And we pray that you would ripen this in our lives individually and as a community more and more. And that this would be a surprising witness in our community. And pray this in Jesus' name.